Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by Fans for Fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and a true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is top five storylines in the NBA part two. And we cannot do this episode alone because for the fourth time, we are bringing our good friend Rashad Christian back to the podcast. Rashad, how are you doing today, man? I am chilling. I'm happy to talk hoops because it's been a minute since I've been on the show. And I'm honestly just excited to be back. Yes, sir. So, Rashad, how have you been recently and what are some of the things that you've been doing recently? So recently, I, I started a new job as a video editor for this TV channel. The channel is called Next Level Sports and Entertainment. So I edit a bunch of college football shows. I edit some uh, like sports podcast shows, stuff like that, made for air. Um, that's where you must have been taking up my time recently. I started about a month ago and just been... That's great to hear. That's great to hear. So let's get into some of these storylines because... Wow, there is a lot happening in the NBA, and the biggest quite, story quite right things. now, <laughs> quite a few, quite a few <laughs> things to say uh, with the NBA. So, looking at the Chicago Bulls to start this one, this is arguably the biggest story right now in the league. And Jalen, of course, is none too pleased with the story because it was reported ten players on the COVID nineteen list for the Chicago Bulls, two games postponed. Um, it was they, as I think they were facing the Pistons and the Raptors in their next two games. So just to give you a list of the players on that list right now for the Chicago Bulls, we have Alice A. Johnson, Zach Levine, Troy Brown Jr., Ayo Desumu, Stanley Johnson, Derek Jones Jr., Matt Thomas, DeMar DeRozan, Kobe White, and Javante Green. So a lot of players on that list and Rashad, I just want to start with you because I think this is really an interesting situation with the Chicago Bulls. Now they now they've had to postpone two of their games. How has this affected the Chicago Bulls so far? I mean, first and foremost, like taking away of consistency. Like the start of the year, we're looking at the Bulls as this tremendous contender who made all of the right moves in the in the offseason. They're looking like a squad that can contend with the best. And then 10 players start coming out of the rotation they start coming out of the roster you sign stanley johnson like we were talking about before the pod he gets signed almost immediately gets flipped into the covid protocols list i mean it's just been that type of like past two weeks for the bulls and i mean it's it's a rough one to look at because like i said they are such a good team they're so fun to watch derozan levine the whole starting five the big five really like they're just a pleasure to watch and it just kind of sucks watching them kind of waste away this portion of the season because COVID, man. COVID, man. And it's interesting because the Bulls center, Nikola Vucevic, just returned from his own uh, COVID-19 absence. And even the team's broadcasters, um, according to the CBS article, Stacey King and Bill Wennington have both entered the COVID-19 health and protocol um, should I say the NBA's health and safety protocols? But uh, Jalen, let's talk about this from the fans' perspective because this is a Chicago's Bull, this is a Chicago Bulls team that's second in the Eastern Conference right now. They have a lot. They have a lot of momentum. How do you feel about the situation? You know, 
kind of sucks, bro. Kind of sucks. No, and also is like this. This is where my viewpoint is. It, it zooms really close into Rashad's main point, which is it just kills momentum, right? You're one of the teams that came in with let's say mid expectations in terms of like the national mainstream media, right. As a team that most people projected to finish like sixth at the best in the East. And you start off with one of the hotter starts in the entire NBA where you're sitting just barely behind the Brooklyn Nets who have also been playing lights out with Kevin Durant looking like an MVP candidate. And now you have all of these players go down and thankfully, you know, we got the postponed, which, you know, is going to put more games on the back end. But the biggest thing, it, that momentum killer is crazy. DeMar DeRozan's averaging nearly 27. Zach Levine's averaging just over, like, 25 points a game. Uh, Vucevic is back to his double-double ways. I think he's averaging, like, 15 and 10 or 16 and 10, something like that. The dude has a steal and a block per game, too. Anybody who says Vooch isn't playing defense this year is not watching the tape. Lonzo's pretty much the same player he was last year, but he just looked more confident from three. Alex Caruso is pretty much i don't want to say single-handedly because there's a lot of team defense going on but he has in a way single-handedly imprinted himself on the new culture defensively for this team so for all of those things that kind of get like you know a monkey wrench thrown in the middle that like really hurts now granted these are two games that i think if we get back later they're not going to be crucial right it's detroit who's probably not playing for the playoffs i feel like we all can say that's a safe assumption and then the Raptors, who we don't know, know who they are right now and where they are later in the season, it's actually more important to them than, you know, where they are at this current moment. So it's just a killer, man. That was two games I think we could have definitely won right now under the circumstances, but I, I think we'll be all right. Yeah, it's definitely going to take some time for all the players to get back, but it seems like a couple of those players are set to return this week. I think Javante Green and Kobe White are two of the first players that are set to return this week. So you will get some of that depth back for your next game on the 19th against the Los Angeles Lakers. But let's talk about the Chicago's Bulls, the Chicago Bulls this season overall. They're 17 and 10. Like I mentioned earlier, they're second in the Eastern Conference. This is a team that has really surpassed expectations before the season. So Rashad, do you believe that this team has a chance to win the Eastern conference? Confidently. I think I can say yes, because it's, it's just like you look at the team and, and the fact that they've had such a hot start, it all points to the fact that this is such a, such a well-balanced team from start to finish. We've talked about the depth, We've talked about AC and Lonzo kind of heading up the defensive efforts as the arguably like the most defensively gifted backcourt in the NBA at the moment right now. You've got your two wings who people say normally do not work and have been ragdolling on the Celtics and the Clippers or whatever. They've been going with the two wing experiments. Hasn't really worked out. You're looking at the Bulls now. We were talking about this again pre-pod. Jalen brought up the fact that they've got the only duo averaging over 26 points or top 10 in league and scoring right now. They're right next to each other. And I think you take you take all of that stuff top to bottom and really look at it at value. And you see the fact that it's pointing toward them winning games. It's not empty. They're not doing this for a 500 record. They're doing this for a second in the East. And I think that's a lot to look at right now. Jalen, taking your Bulls fandom out of the equation, 
do you think that the Bulls have a chance to win the Eastern Conference? And if they do, what are, or should I say, who are some of the teams that you believe could prevent that from happening? Okay, so if, if we're making sure we take the fandom out, I'm going to say no, but only because of the gauntlet that might take place. Now, granted, the, the bright side of this is we're second. Second in the East while all this madness is happening. So we got a couple of games ahead of teams that might be a threat in the seeding when we get to that portion of the season. But there's a lot of good teams at the bottom that are just having a really weird year, right? The Celtics, Atlanta, um, Milwaukee started out mad slow. They've picked up, you know, now. And, you know, they're more than likely going to get guys like Dante DiVincenzo. I think he's actually coming back, like, soon. Brooke Lopez should be back on the floor by the end of the season as well so there's like little things here and there so i mean brooklyn you know obviously let's take you know Kyrie has been a big topic as of late as being a potential returner that's still something in the in in the distance but i would say even as currently constructed that's a team we do have to watch out about uh, watch out for despite the fact that i think defensively we actually might be able to hang with them low-key um so i think that would just be a good overall series i think the heat are really strong defensively I think the biggest issue with them is just that if we can score on them, then I don't think they can give us the same energy back. That's the thing. So my point is, if I had to say, do we have a legitimate chance of winning the East? I would say no, but it would be because if I have a 50% confidence in my team, and then if you divvy up the other 50%, there's a, a handful of different squads that I feel like could either sneak up on us, like an Atlanta that's lower seated right now, or a Celtics team that's lower seated right now, or teams that are like right there in the forefront that just have really solid personnel, like the Bucks, who are defending chance, for example, or Brooklyn or Miami. I think that's really interesting. And Rashad, I kind of wanted to get your reaction to that as well. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I see both sides of it. Like I see the fact that, you know, this is a team that is it's looking like it's poised to make a deep playoff run. And it's looking like a team that also, might drop a couple of unfortunate games in the playoffs, right? Those teams like the Bucks, those teams like the Heat, they're not, they will never go down quietly, right? And, and those rosters are well-constructed as well is the reason why we keep talking about them as contenders year in and year out. Like they've done the exact same job as the Bulls have in terms of roster building. So you're kind of looking at it at a level playing field right now, but like you said, I mean, they're, they're looking really strong right now, you know, and it's kind of hard to try to discount them from how well they've started this season. But I think reality, as the season goes on, reality might set in a little bit more. We might see the Bucks doing a little bit better. We might see the Heat doing a little bit better once they get more healthy again. And the Sixers, whatever's happening with them, they might be a dark horse too. It's just, Jalen said it right. I mean, there are a lot of variables in the Eastern Conference and it's kind of hard to say, <clears throat> excuse me, that without a doubt that they would make it all the way, but it'd be interesting for sure. And I think there'd be a lot of tough fights along the way. Yeah, I, I think Chicago has a legitimate chance to win the Eastern Conference. I think when you look at this team and how they've been able to, like how, how, how their depth is constructed, should I say. I think when you look at how their team is constructed, this is maybe the most balanced team right now in the NBA outside of the Golden State Warriors. And I think when you look at how good this team has become, how easy they were able to flip the switch from last year to this year, looking at the depth of this team, given also the acquisitions in the offseason, getting, Le uh, getting Zach Levine some uh, backcourt help with Lonzo Ball 
and Alex Caruso, also adding DeMar DeRozan. And even going back to last season with Nikola Vucevic as the first player that was added to kind of kickstart this, this playoff run for the Chicago Bulls. There's definitely a lot of interesting uh, players to talk about, but also this depth is going to really help them go deep in the playoffs. But I have those concerns about when they play teams like the Brooklyn Nets, the Milwaukee Bucks, the Miami Heat, Philadelphia 76ers. It'll be interesting to see if the Cleveland Cavaliers get to the playoffs too, because they're sitting at fourth in the Eastern Conference right now. I want to say something about that because I don't know if you guys caught me, but while I can't, I think it was Jalen who was talking. I looked at the standings for the Eastern Conference. Mm. Cavs are sitting at 17 and 12. Yeah. Like I knew, I knew they were playing really well lately, but I didn't know they had like skyrocketed the standings to top five. That is like, that's really impressive. They've been doing it uh, with Evan Mobley playing some really great basketball too. I mean, he was Mm -hmm. out for two to four weeks and it didn't really hinder them as much as I thought it did. But I mean, having, having Evan Mobley as one of your primary scorers, I thought losing Colin Sexton would have been huge too, but it's not really affecting them either, which is weird. And then the whole debacle of whether or not to get Kevin Love out of Cleveland, that has kind of simmered down too because he's he's been playing pretty well recently as well. So uh, definitely, they're definitely an interesting team to watch out for, much like the Chicago Bulls. But another interesting team that I want to talk about is the New Orleans Pelicans, specifically – Zion Williamson, who who was announced to uh, actually the Pelicans announced that he was shut down from basketball activities. So, Jalen, I want to start with you on this one because what is going on with Zion Williamson? Okay, I finally get it. I finally get to get all my jokes off on pod. This is excellent. All right, y'all. So this is this is my thing when it comes to the Zion situation. First of all, like I said before. It, I've, I've said this off pod a lot, but I'm gonna bring it to the people. If you, if if you guys as listeners have seen some of the more recent pictures of Zion Williamson, I've I I've had it brought to my attention that that the picture was a little out of out of proportion. But like, there was that recent picture where my dude was in the full like red baby gap warm ups as like a big daddy V from WWE impersonator. He was humongous, humongous coming out the stands, huge in, in what I call the, the, like, I mean, they, they were the cool downs. They were not the warmups at all. This man was chilling. And the thing that killed me about him is some of the stuff that I read recently. And Ryan brought it to my attention. Um, Actually, uh, I think a day or two ago that there was stuff taking place with um the locked on Pelicans podcast. And I kind of looked into it a little bit deeper today because we were we were talking about there was a recent picture of him that was different from that baby fat picture that I was looking at where it was him with two two fans where he looked significantly slimmer. And so I started reading into it and there was this idea that Zion Williamson is um, lazy and that he doesn't he's not committed to his craft. He falls asleep during um, he falls asleep during film sessions. He doesn't come to his rehab on time. And so, like, all of this to, to amount to my overall thought process is, does Zion Williamson want to genuinely play for the New Orleans Pelicans? Because everybody in the mainstream media makes it seem as though, or at least everybody from the New Orleans Pelicans camp, right, or even, like, his personal camp, makes it seem like he wants to play for this team. 
But why does it feel like every single time that he's supposed to be due to come back, it gets tanked? Like, right, like based on his original timetable, he was supposed to come back in late December. We just got news earlier this week, late last week, that that would be pushed back because of it of, of a minor disruptions in terms of, I think, another lower extremity injury. It's stuff like that that just makes you wonder. And then if you look at his actual contract situation, his extension, he's supposed to be able to get like a qualifying offer for like 17.5 mil or something like that. But if he doesn't play all year, it drops all the way to 7.4. I don't know about y'all, but Zion Williamson is probably not going to take that, which goes to the point of you can't really give him anything any, any heftier than that when you have really barely any kind of sample size to work with. Now, I understand Zion Williamson is good when he's been on the floor, but he hasn't been on the floor. So it puts me in a weird predicament. I kind of want to pose it as a question to you guys. Like, if you're David Griffin, which is a tough seat to be in, first of all, but, like, if you're in David Griffin's shoes, do you even do you do you contemplate the idea of not re-signing Zion and letting him go into restricted free agency? You, you know, yeah. you know. That's a yeah. No, that's a really good question. I it's because it's Zion, right? Like he played a majority. He played so well last year, averaging twenty-seven and seven on dunks and layups at a high clip. Played a lot of the season. He was looking really good. He was an all-star. He, all of these great things. But then you're right. He doesn't play. <laughs> so it's like his Crazy. first and third year, we've seen less than like – we haven't – we've seen 19 games his first year. Most of the season next – or the next year, zero this year. So we're, we're looking at, like you said, a limited sample size. It's just – it's a hard choice. I, I think I would simply because of the sample size that we saw, like second year player coming into the league, averaging nearly 30 points a game. Like that's a lot to let go. And as a trade asset, do you let him go for free? Do you let him just head into restricted free agency with no prospects of getting anything back? So essentially at this point, you've now wasted a first overall pick. You've now wasted the start of this man's career, whether that's your fault or his own, depending on how you you look at injuries or whatever. But it's, it's a lot of wasted time so far, but I would. Right. So I yeah. think it, I'm contemplating because I would and I also wouldn't. I would because of what I see on the court and the potential that he has as a basketball player for your franchise. Right. I wouldn't because the franchise has set him back so bad and let's this dates back to our one of our first episodes on the hoop talk podcast what was one of the first topics we talked about why is zion not playing in any of these bubble games oh yeah oh i i remember that it was it was alvin alvin gentry was the coach and we had that big debate Mm. about whether about whether or not zion should be getting more minutes in those bubble games because remember new orleans was going to make the playoffs that year if the season had ended right, right then and there right. Dang. because it because they had to play uh they 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 played like a small set of games they, they played like eight games and then they they struggled in most of them and then they ended up getting eliminated toward the end of the season and then this stuff comes up with zion and his there there's a bone in his foot that isn't healing properly 
and it's actually causing him a it's 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 doing more harm than good for him so i mean do you do you give him a fresh start somewhere else is the real question I just get the, the thing that I wonder when it comes to the whole restrictive free agency thing. Well, okay. Truthfully, either way, they're going to give him like a qualifying offer of some kind. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the idea would be like, he wouldn't actually be testing free agency till like the year after. But the point is the reason why I say that you might have to like actually start contemplating some kind of exit strategy is because bro, there's too many articles saying that the, the new Orleans Pelicans are going to be buyers. This, this, um, this season, when we talk about the trade deadline, and it's strictly out of their situation. So I had to pull their cap sheet up because I I wasn't I wasn't here. And I was like, why would they pick up more talent? They've kind of already done a lot of like crazy moves as it is. Yo, they have two people. They have two people who are actually expiring contracts at the end of this year. Thomas Sadoransky and Gary Clark. Other than that, dang near everybody they have on the roster is at least signed through 22-23. And they have a handful of guys like Devontae Graham, Brandon Ingram, uh, Trey Murphy, who they obviously just got in the draft, guys like that who are signed all the way up to 24-25. Like Brandon Ingram's not going to be a fun contract to, to try to uh, to move because he's an ascending contract. He's owed $29 million right now. By 2024-25, he's owed 36. That's a lot of bread. And you oh. want to talk crap. You see what I mean? You talk People talk crap about like Russell Westbrook's contract being a toughie. Look, this is some real cap-like shenanigans right here to really get this done. Even after that, you think about the assets they would actually be moving at the trade deadline. They got Josh Hart, who they were kind of apprehensive about signing in the offseason as it was, which was weird. But he signed through 2023. He's basically owed $12 million over the last three years, pretty much $12 million on the dot. Devontae Graham, pretty similar circumstances. He's an ascending contract, but he doesn't get too high um, up as well. It's like when you look at the circumstances, they almost have to, if they plan on keeping Zion Williamson, they almost have to play the win now game. What did we see happen the last time New Orleans did that, right? They picked up Rondo. They had Boogie. They messed both of that up because they didn't bring either one of them back, by the way, which was kind of foolish considering they had just did their thing against Portland. You throw on top of that the fact that, like, the Drew Holiday thing recently, like, looks extra foolish now, right? When you talk about the idea that this team needs to be in some kind of win-now mode and we just watched Drew Holiday win last win. year. Right, win and win big just last year as part of the Bucks. So it's just like, if you choose to keep Zion, these next couple of moves have to be fire because if they're not, you have no exit strategy. You have no exit strategy and no real roster. So then, like, what are the moves then? Like, that, what, is, what do you look at as... Because it, it's... You're essentially going to be building this, like, win-now thing from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Like, you have an injured star who is supposed to be the centerpiece of this win-now who won't be playing. So now you've got to rely on your secondary tertiary options. Whoever that may be, whoever you'd be getting that's a quality NBA player for the for the lack of quality that you have on your roster. Like it's, they're in such a bad spot, bro. And Brandon Ingram, and I guess Brandon Ingram by default becomes the fall guy because he's the one owed the most money. So in terms of getting pieces back, that's the move. And some could say that him and Zion don't fit well together next to each other. And that might be a pretty fair argument to be able to move on from him anyway. But like, 
what's dude's value? He had like one all-star season, which granted I felt like happened more so in like a down year for the West, you know, if anything, from a talent perspective, I think he, I think he played really well, but like realistically, mm-hmm. like Brandon Ingram had like the kind of year that like Julius Randle had last year. Right. We'll talk, we're, we're going to yeah. get into New York a little bit later, but like that idea that like, the old, you, you just really balled out, you know what I mean? Just really had mm-hmm. a really solid year. But can you take those numbers and equate them to something that's consistent based on your play style? For Brandon Ingram, I just don't think that's the case. And so he becomes the odd man out with the kind of money he's owed. But then you have to ask yourself, what does he command? And I just don't know what that is. Like I said, I think regardless, the exit strategy is terrible, whether it's keeping Zion and trying to put yourself in a position where you actually are a winner or some kind of of like playoff contender or the idea of letting him walk and trying to start it from the ground up, knowing you have the kind of contracts you're going to have to unload. I, I don't see the, I don't see the winning, the, the winning play here. So if you're a big time free agent in new Orleans, I would consider one question is new Orleans a free agent destination. No, 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 not at all. They're getting so, the Saints medical staff. No way. <laughs> so in that case, then, I mean, you would look at the ownership. Mm. Would you want to work with the ownership in New Orleans? No. 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 Because aren't they new? I think they're new, right? I know David Griffin's been the GM for a couple of years. Yeah. They've also they're just new. been, like, dysfunction anyway. So yeah, well, like, there's that. Too. Why even go into that environment, you know? Right. But uh, I, I want to go to Rashad real quick as well because, um, you know, wait, uh, with the Locked On Pelicans podcast host, I believe his name is Jake Madison, he attributed some of this stuff that's going on with Zion Williamson or the Zion, that, the Zion Williamson situation. Uh, he... It says that Williamson reportedly skipped rehab workouts and also fell asleep during a film session. So is there sort of a lack of professionalism for around Zion Williamson? So I think we've seen like, we've seen players like publicly asked to be traded and asked to be like sent away from the team before. So that aspect of it isn't new, whether it's true or not, because like you were saying before, like, there's been a lot of backtracking from both sides of the camps and, you know, Zion himself said that he's happy in new Orleans for an office is saying that family members are saying the opposite. It's just the whole mess. But, um, you know, I, I don't even know, man, like the whole situation itself is just kind of like, there's, there's no real, there's no real attack point with it. Mm-hmm. It's just like, there, you have this massive problem and massive problems in front of you from your your front office being not the most trustworthy to conflicting articles to you know all of these these like the, the articles centered around zion coming out too that are like may not be based in complete truth and it's just you got so many different avenues to to come at this these issues and there's no right way to do it and it's like whatever route you take is going to end up you know severely hurting some other area so whether that is blowing up the team you lose your first round or your first overall pick. You you lose Brandon Ingram, who you made a move for, and all that sort of thing. So, I feel like there's a there has to come a time for New Orleans where they have to decide what team they want to be. They're eight and twenty one right now. They are dead last yeah. in the Western Conference. Yeah. 
So what team are you? And you also just, you also just signed Devontae Graham in the off season too. So like, like what, what are you? Nothing. I I think that's, you're right. Like they, they, like the start of everything that's about to happen and is going to happen comes down to who do you want to be? You're absolutely correct about that. This is a team that like, you kind of look at their ceiling as sort of the Pacers of the West. Like, do they, they peak around the four or fifth seed? Do you, do you got some solid players on the, on the roster, but not enough great players to, to really push you over that edge of becoming a top tier team in your conference. And I think that's ultimately, I think where they would head, no matter the amount of moves that they make, I think new Orleans themselves is just like a franchise cursed with mediocrity. So they're kind of just going to be there <laughs> for the foreseeable future. I really don't see any other, other identity for the squad at all. That is a fire collection of points. I can't even, I don't even have any backups <laughs> for that. That is, I mean, that's just, that's just the truth. Who do you want to be? Where do you see yourself being? I mean, geez. I mean, that's really, that's the, it's scary when you have to talk about a team being that introspective, like this mm-hmm. early in the season. So like that, I mean, those are two really solid points by both of y'all. Cause seriously, that's the circumstance of New Orleans. And the scary part is, I feel like it's deja vu, which is even worse. Because that means that we've seen this movie before. We know where it's headed. And somehow there's still no game plan as how to get out of it. That is crazy to think about. That's it's lazy front office work. Like you're you're not making the the necessary steps as fast as possible. Like it's literally a pacers issue. Like that team was so happy with being middle of the pack that they didn't make any moves to push themselves any further. It looks like New Orleans is happy with being bottom of the pack because they're not making any moves. And there's really no room for them to make any moves that would push them further ahead. So let's move on to the New York Knicks turmoil is what is is what we can best describe it as because good word. Wow. Um let, <laughs> let's kind of break it down here for a second. So let's talk about the COVID-19 issues first. So we have RJ Barrett, Obi Toppin, and now Quentin Grimes has just been added to the list according to, um, or actually uh, yesterday is when we found out uh, Quentin Grimes was going to be added to that list. It's interesting. He just dropped 27 points against Milwaukee Bucks too. So like just when they needed him the most, he's on the COVID-19 list. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was right there. It was right there. <laughs> Yo. Rashad just had to do it. <laughs> had to. I had to. I'm sorry. <laughs> Love to see you, bro. Anyway, anyway. So getting back to the other Knicks stuff, that's Knicks turmoil that's going on. Um, Kemba Walker has been benched now for 10 straight games. Um, he has not played since November 26th. Uh, so, and he actually had one of his better shooting nights in that game, which was interesting enough, but also you factor in the other free agency signing at Evan Fournier, who is averaging lows in points per game. It's he's averaging the lowest in points per game since his first season in Orlando. He's averaging one of the worst shooting percentages in, in his career, including a two point game last night against the golden state warriors. 
there are a lot of issues right now with the Knicks, and now they have to rely on the next player mentality until R.J. Barrett, Obi Toppin, and Quentin Grimes come back. Rashad, I'll, I'll start with you on this one. Um, what in the world is happening with the New York Knicks right now? Excellent question. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, great question. Um, what's happening is that we're kind of seeing a regression back to the mean. So last year was such an outlier for the New York Knicks is the fact the four seed, the New York Knicks led by Julius Randle, that wasn't supposed to happen. One of the better defenses in the league, that wasn't supposed to happen. A high-powered offense, none of it. And now you're looking at a team that blossomed a little too early and wasn't necessarily ready for it. And now they're coming back down to earth where you're looking at a collection of, arguably a collection of role players determining how you look at Julius Randle as a team that is just that. It's, it's not a team that's really going to propel you any further than, you know, what they peaked at last year. And what's going on with them is the front office woes. Again, the, the roster decisions, the things that have plagued the New York Knicks for 20 plus years, <laughs> it's all coming back without fail. It just keeps on coming back to them. The fact that, oh, my God, when it first got announced that their bench unit was better than their starting unit, <laughs> I feel like that's where it all went downhill. <laughs> oh, my God. Because that, no, that was a wild day. Like, you saw the, the uh, I think it was a graphic or something that was just like, the bench unit was miles better on the floor than the starting five. And it was really embarrassing. That's it. Yeah, that, that's what's been going on. <laughs> Not to mention they started the season five and one. And last year, you talked about their defense. And I actually thought it was interesting. Last year, first in opponents' points per game, they are third in the NBA in defensive rating. This is arguably the best defensive New York Knicks team in a while. I'll I'll say that in a while. This year. They've regressed in both opponents' points per game and defensive rating. They are 16th in opponents' points per game, 23rd in defensive rating. Just, just when things go right for the New York Knicks, one season ago, we are back to square one. Jalen, your thoughts. What, what, in the, what in the world is going on with the New York Knicks? So here's my thing, because I'm going to put it more in like a – statistical perspective because this is one of those things that like if you're not like a big NBA numbers nerd it might fly over your head but one of the biggest things that was talked about last year was like New York Knicks opponent three-point shooting luck and compared to their own and apparently they had very good luck in terms of other teams missing their threes while they were making their threes now let's put that in perspective Julius Randle 41 percent on five threes nearly six threes a game R.J. Barrett, 40% on just over four threes per game. Reggie Bullock, who's now on Dallas, 41% from three on six attempts a game. Derrick Rose, 41% on nearly three attempts per game. Alec Burks, 41% on nearly five attempts per game. These are these are these are 40% three-point shooters that we all know that 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 in, in real life, those are 2K numbers realistically when we talk about what you see from them on a consistent basis. Let me show you, let me, let me explain to you what their numbers are this year. 
We have Julius Randle on 5.3 three-point attempts, 34%. R.J. Barrett, 5.3 attempts, 35.3%. I'll sub Evan Fournier in for this one. He's at 6.5 attempts, 36.8%. Alec Burks is probably the only person who's remotely consistent with nearly five three-point attempts per game at 39.8%. Realistically, everybody who you thought He's not a shooter, isn't a shooter. It was just a good year. Like Julius Randle, the three-pointers he was in, some of them were like bizarre. If you actually go back and look at the tape, some of Julius Randle's like off-the-dribble threes were just like he threw up a prayer and it went down. R.J. Barrett, we thought he took a significant step as a distance shooter, and he did for a year, but everything's regressed. Putting too much stock into Evan Fournier would have been a mistake for anybody when it comes to this team. That's first. I think that's first and foremost. And then scary enough, y'all understand that Derrick Rose was injured like two or three games ago and Kemba still didn't play? Like, that's yeah. that's bonkers to me. And for on top of that, for Tom Thibodeau to basically announce, like, not only are we, like, straight-up demoting Kemba, but, like, I already know who I'm replacing him with. It's for sure Alec Burks. Like, that was, like, off-rip the initial – the initial report was that like Alec, Alec Burks getting promoted to starting lineup. Kimba Walker never played again. Like, I think that's, that's so crazy to think about the fall from grace. But let me, let me ask y'all this because this is actually a, a more interesting storyline in terms of the Knicks than anything is Kimba. Why does his story for the Knicks sound mad similar to Carmelo Anthony with Houston or with Oklahoma? Why does it sound mad? Dude gets brought in, right, via free agency. Kemba was a little bit different because of the buyout, but this was a guy who wasn't supposed to be a free agent. The idea of being, let's argue, like, the second or third piece, but specifically brought to the Knicks to, uh, to apply pressure to the one thing that plagued them the most against Atlanta, right? They talk about the lack of ball handling, the lack of shot creation. You were brought in for that purpose. Carmelo Anthony, for example, with Oklahoma City, was supposed to be brought in as another isolation scorer that could give the give OKC somebody else to score when PG and Russ are not on the floor. Or just in the case of everybody knows that the game plan is you stop Russ, you stop PG. They don't have anybody else because OKC was playing with a bunch of defensive players around those two guys. Sounds like to me, <laughs> the Knicks found the blueprint and didn't realize that it didn't work in Houston. I mean, it didn't work in OKC. I keep saying Houston because I know there was that whole situation with Carmelo, with James Harden and Chris Paul that was also similar. It just sounds like Kimba got the short end of the stick on this one. Do y'all think he deserved it? That's what my like overall like question is leading to. Do y'all think that Kimba got the short end of the, st- short end of the stick and this was kind of the wrong way to approach it? Or do you think with the way he's been playing, he's been pretty lax a days ago, I will say, and it's definitely a down year for him. He's averaging 11.7 points per game in the 18 points and 18 games he played. Like, Ryan, I guess I'll start with you. Like, do you think that was like the right play? Like, or do you think that like they were supposed to like ride this out a little longer? At the time, I would say yes. Because if you look at how Alec Burks had been playing to that point, he should have been the starting point guard for that team. And you can honestly argue he should still be the starting point guard for that team. If I mean, I know there's a lot of people that would think Derrick Rose should be the starting point guard of that team as well. But honestly, I think Alec Burks worked really hard to earn that role. He had been putting up some great games 
on both sides of the floor this season. So I think that uh, that he had that chance and he took the role and he's been he's been doing a, a pretty good job for the most part this season as the starting point guard for the Knicks. I think if you look at the Kemba Walker aspect of it, I don't know if this is going to be a hot take or not, but I think Kemba Walker might get traded pretty soon. I don't think he's going to be a New York Knicks for very long. And him getting benched for 11 games reminds me a lot of how the Cavs preserved is the word I'm going to use for this, mm-hmm. for this one, Andre Drummond. Oh, and I, I just, yeah, it just feels weird. Like, like, uh, I'll even say like how Detroit preserved Blake Griffin before he got bought out. Like this, this is very, very similar. And it's given me a really weird feeling that the New York Knicks are preserving Kemba Walker so that he can get traded. But I kind of want to know what you got, how you guys feel about that aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I was gonna mention the fact that I I saw some things on social media, not from like any official sources or anything, but people just speculating why Kemba wasn't playing. It was the fact that he's probably already on the chopping block, and they can't really. Uh, your season's bad enough as is. There's really no point in hurting a trade asset or potentially like losing one when you need to like improve your team right now. So, I'm I'm in the same line of thinking as you are. Like, I th- I think it's about time that. Ken believes and go somewhere that's actually going to utilize him how bad he's playing like I mean what 11 on 43 percent from the field 41 from three like those I mean it, those are passable numbers right obviously Kemba's not the starting point guard anymore and he never will be but as a solid backup option like I don't think I would pass up on that team or on that on that option so I think it is time and I think the Knicks kind of realized that too like he wasn't really as as high as their standards were for what he was supposed to be. Like he wasn't meeting them, and now it's time for him to go. Jalen, how you feel about it? The only thing that's sketchy about it is like, how many teams need a backup point guard? That's also something you gotta like, think like about. Atl- yeah, like-, like Atlanta, like I know Atlanta kind of does, right? Like sorta, because Lou Will's solid. But like, let's be real, the on-off numbers for Trey Young is like kind of ridiculous. Like I think I looked yeah. up his usage, and like he, I think he, his usage went up by like six or something from last year, which is nuts because Trey Young already gets the ball a lot. So like for it to be even more, considering the depth of Atlanta, that's pretty insane. Um. The team he was rumored to in the offseason with Dallas, I think they're the team. But if they didn't want to trade for Goran Dragic, right, they wanted to get him via, like, you know, free agency, like, you know, in terms of Toronto doing the buyout method. If they wouldn't trade for Goran Dragic, why would they trade for Kemba? I would assume that, I mean, I would assume we all agree that Kemba's the better player at this, at this, at this time frame. But he signed for four years, 80 mil, and, like, Goran Dragic, you know, his 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 deal is not nearly as long and not nearly as hefty. So that's, like, kind of my only thing. So it's, like, once you start going down that list, and the, the main thing you have to factor in is, okay, let's do the even deeper dive. Even if those – even if there's a handful of teams that need a backup point guard, now how many teams – 
have the assets they're willing to give up for four years, 80 million of Kemba Walker, who looks like a shell of himself at the moment. That that's the only reason why I don't know if he can get traded is because that's a that's a that's an organizational question you have to ask yourself with the assumption that Kemba Walker is some kind of put you over the top piece. And I don't know too many teams that are in that position to feel like they're going to take that kind of swing on him. I feel like the Knicks could also be in a situation where they could honestly just use him as a backup point guard. I know that they have the expectations of him being a starter, but 11.7 points on 43% shooting from the field and 41% shooting from three is really good for somebody who would be coming off the bench in that case. But I think the Knicks are pretty much just done with Kemba Walker and he's unfortunately regressed going back to last season. He hasn't really had a great season since his first season with Boston. And after that second year, I think him and Boston kind of knew things weren't working. So he ended up getting traded to Oklahoma city ends up getting bought out and then goes to New York. Things aren't really working there. So I feel like his options might be limited. Jalen, I know you have something to say. Rashad, I want to ask you a question real quick. As like the like as the the resident like OKC fan on on the pod, real quick. Do you think now we we're trying to play businessman for Kimball Walker here? So like you know, rock with me here. Do you think from a business standpoint that it would have been smarter for Kimba to hang with the Thunder, Absolutely. get his stock right. going, play next to Shea, play as kind of the mentor figure? and do it in a more efficient way than, like, Houston's doing with John Wall, for example, right? Like, play it the real long game way, the way they did with, like, Al Horford last season, for example. I was just about to say, yeah, yeah. like, you you had the, the blueprint for elevating an old player's value, someone who was out of their prime. And honestly, like, I legitimately don't know why they didn't do it. I guess it was because he was a guard and, there are already enough guard minutes on this roster as it is. So trying to incorporate Kemba into a team that's trying to develop these young guards and all these young players, it would have been a little challenging, but I think at the end of the day, like, like you said, with the rocket situation and John wall, even if they did just go that route, like I, that would have been much better than buying him out and essentially just like being a middle point for him. Mm-hmm. Right. So like you got nothing out of him, you got pretty much nothing in return for him and, now you're sitting there with no veteran leadership, no veteran presence who can, who could have helped like develop these guards even more. Cause that is a former all-star point guard right there. Like that's a valuable piece, even if it is just in the developmental role, but I guess Kemba probably wanted to play and go somewhere where he was actually going to be like a, an actual piece on a team. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that was just, the, like I said, that was just my question out of the fact that, I mean, when you look back at it, and 2020 hindsight is tricky, right? Because I feel like all of us right. will make better decisions if we could see in the future. But this is one of those where, Ryan, I think we talked about it on the pod, too. Like, the idea that, like, that was kind of a quick, that was a quick turnaround. And in a way, we, I mean, the way we described it was that, like, Kimball Walker was, like, the saving grace of the offseason for New York because, like, Otherwise, they were going to walk away saying, we brought back Derrick Rose and we signed Evan Fournier. I hope y'all were cool with that money that we had extra that definitely was supposed to be aimed at big-name free agents who wasn't worried about us, right? So, like, we, I think we put a positive spin on it because of the fact that it was like, if it wasn't Kimball Walker, most, like, New Yorkers would have been 
for lack of a better way to put it, pissed that that was the kind of way the offseason went, staying low-key after, after hitting the fourth seed like that. But if you look at it in reverse now, if there was anybody who should have maybe thought about like where, like where their trajectory was going, Kimball Walker, I mean, he came into the season injured. That didn't help. The fact that he's kind of been playing as if he's still injured kind of makes it worse. And if anything, you stepped on into a team that already has crazy expectations from the fans off rip, right? No matter what's, how the, the past season ended, but they just came off of the four seed dropping bing bongs after every three-pointer now like this is a team that like legitimately is like embracing the hype of what last year was and you stepped into that environment as the new york kid right he i think he was born in i think he was born in nyc as well you step into that environment as the new york kid coming off the knicks being the fourth seed as a as a as a real playoff team for the first time in a grip and you're injured and not up to speed on a team that actually has like OD depth. Cause like Emmanuel quickly is actually good. Alec Burks is actually good. Derrick Rose is really good off the bench. Like, I just think he might've, I think he might've just got bad advising low key. Like when you really look at the like landscape of the situation, it almost seemed like bad management, like to step into that situation as a whole. I, I don't know. I don't know. It just seems like a bad call. I, I will say this, though, because in the case that – I know we're going to get to Portland next, actually, but in the case that Damian Lillard does one out and all these rumors to the New York Knicks are true, I would think New York throws Kemba Walker in, in a deal. I would think. I mean, he's yeah. definitely a yeah. part of this, of, this, of this deal. But – um. Let's just get straight into Portland because there is something Ooh. interesting going on in Portland. And you could say there's some turmoil there, but let's look at the Trailblazers coaching situation right now with Chauncey Billups. As Chauncey Billups has been calling out his players a lot this year for not competing hard enough. But then you also sprinkle that in with the Damian Lillard trade rumors that are weighing heavily on this team, I would think. And then also CJ McCollum will be out for a good portion of time with the collapsed lung. Jalen, what is going on with Portland? Portland is so sketchy because of the fact that like they have everything they need to be a legitimate team in the Western conference. They have Damian Lillard at the point guard position, CJ McCollum as a secondary scoring option who can do for himself, right? He's not a guy who just like plays off of Dame and creates as being able to like maximize the idea of another guard getting so much gravity. You have a guy in Larry Nance Jr. who for a team that was pretty bad defensively last year, you get crazy switchability from this six, seven, six, eight dude who like, or I, I guess he's more like between like, you know, six, five and six, eight, but like mad rangy and mad switchable showed lots of flashes as a defensive stopper at the four position for Cleveland last year when Cleveland was like a top five defense for like the first 15 games of the season. And me and Ryan were like, that looks sketchy, but like, we'll keep tabs on it. You have a guy in Robert Covington who 
let's let's really be real from the three position let's talk about the history of portland a little bit trevor arizo in the back nine al faruk aminu for a good minute way too many minutes from nasir little in the beginning right from the minute he got drafted like if we're being real robert covington is the definition of a three and d player in this juncture of the nba landscape and he's actually been more of a net negative for them within the scheme they're trying to play offensively and defensively hasn't been crazy as a three-point shooter for them and is not clamping up anybody i think the biggest thing too might have been the 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 perception that because of robert covington's build he would be an elite on ball defender kind of like lonzo ball and like mikhail bridges and guys like that but he's not a hounder he's a good roamer that has the length to play good team defense emphasis on team as in like Guys like C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard, who are net negatives on defense, can't be the two guys up at the top of the key with you in a 3-2 or even in a 2-3 zone concept, which is a lot of the stuff they're trying to do is switching and a lot of this like more multifaceted defensive scheming that they just don't have the personnel for. So Chauncey, right, we have to remember who he is because I think that's the thing that gets misconstrued in this concept. Chauncey Billups played for arguably one of the best defensive teams in league history as part of the 04 Pistons. And that's kind of like shrinking down the true value of that team into one year when in reality they were a very solid defensive team for at least a three to four year span. But that year in particular is obviously the one that stands out. So as a member of a as, as a as a coach for a team that has I think the personnel to actually be a, a pretty solid defensive team and them not living up to that, I think is what is, again, for lack of a word, word, word to, to put in this phrase, it's pissing them off. <laughs> and with that being the case, you throw in the Lillard rumors, CJ McCullum basically getting shot in the lung, all the injuries, and it's kind of one of those things that spirals, spirals and spirals. and we all know in the NBA, when the snowball starts forming, there's got to be a fall guy. So to me, I don't think that I don't I don't think that Chauncey Billups is actually doing anything wrong. I think that a I think their last coach, Terry Stotts, was like way more chill. And I think that when you go from a chill coach to total totalitarian, it's like having the cool teacher regularly and then getting the substitute teacher who acts like she actually runs the class. You know what I mean? It's one of those kind of deals. And that dynamic is where we kind of, that's where the rubber meets the road. So I think Portland, Portland needs to have an internal conversation with themselves about their direction, because I think that this is kind of, this is not similar to what you were saying earlier, Ryan, um, when we were talking um, about New Orleans, it's a, it's a little bit deeper than that for Portland, I feel like, because I think they're already in the position to be a legitimate playoff contender versus New Orleans is still in the works for it. I think this is something that internal that they just have to figure out who they want to be as a playoff team because I think they got the personnel. Rashad, it, it also is interesting because the Blazers don't have a GM either. They fired their GM earlier in the season. And you look at Chauncey Billups' tenure, he was pretty much brought in to fix the defense. And according to this article 
on NBC Sports by Dan Feldman, which was written two days ago, the Blazers are now 28th in points allowed per possession. And their offense has also been struggling this year. We I mentioned uh I mentioned in the episode with Jackson when we were talking about the most disappointing players, Damian Lillard was one of them because he had been averaging career lows in points per game and also career lows shooting from the field and shooting from three. And you figured around that time he was going to turn it around. Well, he's still kind of having those struggles here almost two months into the season. So I actually want to, I actually want to pose this question to both of you, but I want to get Rashad's opinion first. Is it time to fire Chauncey Billups just a month into the season? Uh, oh, um, well, no, because I, I, the issue is still personnel, right? It's it's still the people on your roster. Like, no matter how much like potential we may see from them defensively in terms of how their roster is built, it's just not adding up, right? That potential is not coming out. Your superstar player who you're leaning on, who's been, you know, his commitment to the squad has been a little turbulent for the past one, two years now. He's starting to play poorly. You've got a new coach, so that ultimately comes with its own set of struggles, learning how your players play, learning what rotations to run, learning what the locker room culture is like, you know, all that all that sort of stuff, what, what lineups work the best, whatever, whatever. It's just it's a lot of things converging on the trailblazers at once, and it kind of sucks for them, right? And obviously a lot of it is kind of self-inflicted from Dame not being very decisive on what his future is and, you know, how the front office is playing this whole situation as well. And like you said, Ryan, they don't have a GM. So there's really no one at the helm to, to make these decisions for them. So you're kind of relying on these out-of-position people to come in and make these big personnel choices. And we're starting to see, we're starting to see the effects of that, right? We're starting to see why teams you, you need the very best GM that you have. You need the very best decision makers in your front office, because if you don't, things like this happen where you have a generational talent and you've had nothing to show for it for the past X amount of years. Yeah. Man. I mean, the, the best way to put it is I did, I completely agree with everything that Rashad said. The only part that gives me cause to pause is Ryan. We have to take a look at like our sneaky favorite team to talk about on the podcast when it comes to turmoil. And that's Indiana. And this smells of Indiana in terms of like last season, because you talk about the coaching situation, uh, creating divisiveness within the locker room that obviously went just because you have a good philosophy in terms of what you want from your players, which is what I believe is the case with Chauncey Billups. When you go about, implementing it the one thing that you can't do and this was very indicative of why indiana season blew up when you talk about the fact they have the personnel they have the guys to be a legitimate team in the eastern conference but you can't lose the locker room you know what i mean like you can't yeah. like you can do whatever you want from an x and o standpoint or even as a rah-rah guy that's like more of a player's coach but you can't lose the locker room so the trick is 
do you want to bite this bullet before think before the dumpster fire gets bigger, right? Which would be the idea of firing him early rather than waiting for it like Indiana did, waiting for the entire season to play out. Find out that you like just barely missed the playoffs because you destroyed Charlotte in the play-in game. It just didn't kind of come to show up, you know, in the second game. Or do you, you know, ride it out with the expectation that these are much more established guys than maybe Indiana has, right? There's a lot of guys in Indiana that are still kind of like trying to prove themselves to a certain degree, right? A lot of people think that DeMontis Sabonis is like a fake all-star. A lot of people think that like Miles Turner like actually isn't as good as he is or is more fits more as like a stretch big that's just a part of a system, which might not be necessarily incorrect, but you know, whatever the case is, uh, everybody leans into the idea that, you know, bubble TJ Warren was more than likely a fallacy, things of that nature, as opposed to this Portland team that has like been in the trenches, has went long, um, has went long spouts of not only making the playoffs consistently, but making significant runs and stuff like that. So I don't know, man, that's the only thing that makes me worry is if we didn't have a literal sample to lean on from just last year i would like completely agree with rashad without any doubt but because of that in looming in the background like that that's that's the cause to pause yeah the the blazers are in a interesting position to say the least and i feel like this is the last year with this core that they can make something happen because i think after this year and nothing happens, I think it's time to just blow it up because Damian Lillard has already been flirting with the idea of leaving Portland. We've seen CJ McCollum and multiple trade packages in, in possible trades. And then the rest of the roster, who knows what's going to happen with them. They just got Larry Nance Jr. in the offseason. They also just traded for Norman Powell and signed him to a big extension. I feel like this entire roster, the entire organization, there's just way too many questions right now with it. And I'm not as confident about their future. Unless things drastically turn around under Chauncey Phillips, this is concerning to say the least. But let's end with one of the biggest topics right now in the NBA, and it's actually a record breaker. Steph Curry becoming the all-time leader in three-point shooting He surpassed Ray Allen last night, hitting his first three within the first minute of the game, and then the record-breaking three about five minutes into the game. Um, Jalen, I want to start with you on this one because Steph Curry has been so influential to basketball with what he's been able to do with the three-point shot. So just looking at his career in general before we get to the Golden State Warriors as a team, How impactful has Steph Curry been to the NBA through his through his uh, 10 plus years in the league? So I like just wrote about this. So it's like really fresh in my mind. Um, In 2009, when Steph Curry came into the NBA, the average amount of threes taken per team was around 17. It's at 36 now. That was a that was a bizarre stat to me by itself. I thought that was insane. Like literally within a decade, since since he basically stepped in, it's shot up so much. 
Brian, I went back to something when I was putting the article together. I actually went back to something you kept harping on when we were talking in the group chat, which was, if you remember, when it comes to New York, one of the biggest things that put Steph Curry on the map was dropping the the, the big like 50-60 piece on New York in 09, I think, or not 09. Um, yeah, I think it was he, 09. No, he dropped a 54 points. It was in 2013. Yeah, 2013. My fault. Yeah, so it was so it was 2013. Yeah, it was like fifth, this is like fourth, fifth uh season in the league. And um, this was still Monte Ellis's team to a certain extent, and like stuff like that at the time. And they lost the game too, which like is the the underlying storyline of all of that as well. But he had 11 of 13 threes in the game. And that was like the that was where the the gangbusters came out. And so I, I went back to the 2013. Now it's all starting to really come back now. I went to 2013. From that year on, it had went from 23s a game up to where we're at from 36. So essentially, Steph Curry set the league on fire in Madison Square Garden, and everybody started to think, oh, dang, we need to start shooting more threes because this kid is kind of breaking the mold with this by taking double-digit threes a game by himself alone, which is bizarre. But something else that stood out to me, and I think we talked about this in the group chat a little bit too, but uh, forgive me if I'm wrong. Steph Curry wanted to be a Nick. Steph Curry was one pick away from being a Nick. Steph Curry erupted and announced to the world that he is here against the Knicks. It only seemed like it made sense that the job got done against the Knicks, right? The way I wrote it was that, like, it wasn't supposed to happen in Philly. It, it, it dang sure wasn't supposed to happen in Indiana. And, like, fellas, if you had to ask yourself, what's the best place for you to break a record in terms of basketball? Well, my home floor would probably be first, right? Maybe that would be like the first place that comes to my home crowd, everything else. But if you don't have that option, right? The 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 I think the Warriors don't play at home again for like another two games. So this wasn't going to be in the cards for him. What's the next best place you'd want to get the job done? The what people consider like Rashad said, the Mecca of basketball, right? Under the bright lights of Madison Square Garden with freaking, you know, the two three-point kings in the building in attendance, Reggie Miller calling the game, Michael Strahan on court side, things of this nature, right? So it's just the environment of it all was so crazy from last night. And it was like one of those things, we were joking about it off pod. They basically paused the game the minute he hit the three. I mean, they let him take a presidential world tour around MSG low-key right after he hit the three. They gave him the Under Armour sponsored commercial that took its own time. And then they gave him like five to six minutes on the bench to kind of just let him bask in the glory of it. Like it was just an overall great, great solid night. And Steph Curry, man, you got people debating on whether or not he's the GOAT now. I think that might be a reach, but I mean, when it comes to three point shoot, there's no argument, man. For real. Yeah. Man, Steph Curry has just been so special since the his breakout year at Davidson. You know, you you saw the inklings of someone who was going to change the way basketball was played. Not to pull a little LeBron or whatever, right? Like, I saw it coming. Like, the first first time in Davidson, he shot up a three. I knew he was going to break the record. (laughs) But no, like, you you see it. Like, 
the fact that he was just he was just chucking them up from the very start of his career and then when they started falling that was when teams started taking notice like oh maybe maybe three points is better than two and maybe <laughs> we should start prioritizing three points instead of these layups and mid-ranges but you know you talk about someone who is a trailblazer I don't think you get any better than Steph Curry like the man literally changed the way the entire sport of basketball was played from top to bottom, like all the way down to the most youth league you can think of. Those children are chucking up three point <laughs> shots at an alarming rate. <laughs> and it's just, it's just to see one man influence the game as much as he is, has done and will continue to, it's just been incredible. Like he's on pace for 5,000 three pointers. That's 15,000 points of his career total coming from beyond the arc. Like, really put that into perspective. The man has over 6,000-plus points just from the three-point line. Bro. That's insane. That's insane to think about. He does it so efficiently, too. That's, I think that's the worst part. The man shoots 45% from three, pretty much. It's like, he's going to drain him. He's going to knock him down. And it's just, it's just something to watch. It's so incredible. You know what's so interesting about Steph Curry as a player? I feel like the one thing that he has against him being the greatest of all time is the fact that he is zero finals MVPs. I think that's really the yeah. only thing that's holding him back. Because if, if you think about it, the three championships in four years, that is a that was an impressive run that he went on. And also interesting with Steph Curry, some of his best three-point shots have been contested, and including the one that broke the record, that was contested. He's, yeah. he's, he, he is by far the greatest shooter of all time, and there's no debate at this point. I feel like when Ray Allen was on the court trying to exchange jerseys with Steph Curry – there was a moment I looked at Ray Allen. Now I'm like, he has some fire left to come back and like maybe take his record back. Did anybody else see that? Because the way he was looking at Steph for a second, I was like, is he actually going to try to come back? Yeah, there was one screenshot I saw of, of Ray Allen just looking just stone faced. Like, why? Why is this happening? Why am I here? And why am I helping this happen right now? I mean, yeah, it took Steph nah. Curry 13 years to break that record. So, Yo, less than ha almost half of the amount of games played that Ray Allen has played, Steph did it in. I, you but, really like. But that just shows you how much the three point shot has been yeah. so effective. Yeah. It's just, you, you chuck them up when you can, and that's the new game plan for everybody. All right. We're going to run some off balls you're going to get a wide open wing three we're going to run some backdoor screens but it's going to be two of them and you're going to end up on the opposite corner for a three-point shot like that's just that's just the way the offense is moved now and it's literally because of him it's man so special look at curry man look at curry man so <laughs> oh, man. inspirational <laughs> look at curry oh, man my God. i mean you look at the four pillars of basketball you have Michael Jordan, in my opinion. I think it's Michael Jordan, Kobe, LeBron, Steph. 
maybe the four most influential players in basketball. You probably throw Kareem or Bill Russell in there too as like the fifth one, but different pod, Ryan. Different pod. Yeah, that's a different that podcast for that one. Because you, I, you got, got, I got a couple of thoughts Shaq, about that one. Say Shaq is in there. Got, like, got those Shaq in that conversation. Ooh, that's, a round, that's a round table. Too. We Re- rearrange Shaq and Kobe and MJ and yeah, that that's you definitely so many ways with that. Ooh, that's a round that's table that. waiting to happen. That's what I was about to say. That's a round table waiting to happen. But um, let's quickly talk about the Golden State Warriors real quick before we close this one out because, wow, as a team, you could talk about Steph Curry and how and how he's been so great this year. But let's just not underestimate the rest of the team and the fact that Klay Thompson's coming back. Also, it felt like for the past couple of games, the Warriors, once they found out Steph Curry was a couple – threes away from breaking the record it just seemed like the game plan changed to make sure that Steph was trying to break the record on that night but it was also hurting the team they actually were turning over the ball more Steph was chucking up a lot more threes than usual and he was missing a lot of them and his three-point numbers are hurting a little bit because of it but they're not hurting as bad but uh Jalen I want to get your perspective on this first what has impressed you about Golden State this year? And where do you think they finish in the Western Conference? So the thing that's been most impressive to me is the way they've been coached up this year because the roster is not that different. I understand there's a lot of, you know, moving pieces here and there in terms of bringing in guys um, like Otto Porter, uh, bringing Andre Iguodala back. Uh, Nemanja Bielita has been pretty solid for them. But, like, let's really think about some of the guys that get really – large rotational minutes within this this Golden State Warriors team. Damian Lee plays a lot. Damian Lee plays a lot as a guy who probably would not be a, a typical rotational player from most uh, championship-level teams. Um, Kevon Looney gets a lot of the center minutes, um, basically when Draymond Green's not on the floor with him. Uh, when he's solo, solo dolo as center, he gets a lot of the center minutes uh, because he's the only player that gives them the ability to to play big, right, at, at any moment. Um, Gary Payton II elevated from the G League and basically wasn't supposed to make this roster coming into the year, right? Like basically, they bet on him as a home as a homegrown product, a guy who's played for their G League uh, G League squad for the last year or two, um, as opposed to going with a. Uh, a known commodity um, with that last roster spot. You know what I mean? So, and he's been really efficient as a defensive player. He's been a guy that I think, like, I've always said, or, like, my thought process on him is he plays 14 minutes a game. I think if he played 22-plus minutes a game, he'd be on an all-NBA defensive team. Like, I think he's just that legitimate as a one-on-one, like, on-ball defender. Um and he took Avery Bradley's spot, which um, most people once upon a time, especially in his early Celtics days, would say, like, that was who he was. So to, to have this team playing at the level that they're playing with, playing at, when there are guys like that getting heavy rotational minutes, playing big minutes and closing lineups and stuff like that, that is insane. That alone is just crazy. I think that's insane to me. Now, 
the thing that's actually more crazy though and i'm sure you guys are going to go there with go there with and rock with what i'm saying is you don't have clay thompson and jordan Poole averages 17 points a game if you move him to the bench he is like the second coming of like lou will jordan crawford uh jamal crawford had a baby like in terms of like being a microwave scorer off the bench like he could really be the real deal if he somehow bumped down to being the sixth man on this kind of squad. So I think the scary part is we haven't even seen the best version of this team and they're doing what they're doing with the personnel they currently have. All of that math does not add up yet when you look at the standings and you look at their circumstances. It does. They're a top five defense in the league right now. They're literally number one in opponent's points per game. They're a top three offense. But when you watch TV, you feel like the only time you see someone shoot is when Curry or Poole puts the ball up. Yeah. Yeah. That that's crazy. That's crazy. So like that, that's really nuts to me. I think the overachievement is nuts. As a Bulls fan, there's a lot of people who doubted the Bulls coming into this season. Golden State got a lot of flack too as a team that was gonna top out as maybe a sixth seed. And we would see where things go once Clay shows up. This team's for real. And that that's a great story to see. And I am not above admitting that I was one of those people that saw the Warriors coming into this year and was just like, playoff team, obviously. Mm. First round exit, possible. Mm. Like that, that's the sort of echelon that I had them in. Like you said, man, like they're get, they're getting the production from literally everywhere. Like I think everyone's realized on this roster that. Because Clay is like this looming thing that will be coming back soon, mm-hmm. you've kind of got to utilize your minutes as well as you can because you know you're going to get bumped down a rotation spot right. once he comes back. So like that added motivation, and you know, a team with Steph and Draymond as your 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 only two All Stars, like that's not a team that you expect to to be number one and show shades of the seventy three and nine team right now with how well they're starting and. They're, they're defying all the odds. They've been consistent. They've been good on both ends. And they just, they've just been great all year. I think that's really all you can say about them. Yeah, just to reiterate some of the points that you guys have made, I think when we're looking at that six-man role, I think Jordan Poole is going to fit right in. I, I don't think they yeah. really have a definable six-man right now. And I think when Clay Thompson comes back, that will easily be Jordan Poole's role. And I think that he'll just be inserted into that sixth man of the year race, along with some great players that are playing some very good basketball this year. Carmelo Anthony's in that race as well for sixth man of the year. Tyler Hero's in that race as well. That's going to be a list that gets another name thrown in there because Jordan Poole for sure deserves to be in that list once Clay Thompson returns. And I think when you talk about the the expectations for this team, much like the Chicago Bulls, Golden State's expectations soared through the roof. With Steph Curry healthy, Draymond, Draymond Green playing great defense like he's always been throughout his, his tenure in the league, and then seeing these younger stars step up like Damian Lee and Jordan Poole and then getting your contributions from the veterans like Andre Iguodala and Nemanja Bialica they're getting it from all cylinders. They're getting help from all cylinders. And 
they look like the most unstoppable team right now and championship contender for sure. Not even close, but um, let's, let's get to our last topic before we close out the show. Cause actually Rashad as our guest for this episode has come up with a topic of his own that we're going to discuss to close bonus out this time, episode. bonus time, bonus time, bonus time, bonus time. Indeed. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So, this has just been something that's been looming on my mind for actually like the better part of this year. Um, Nikola Jokic, man, right? Like the reigning MVP, the man's doing, he his stat line right now, 26 and a half, 14 and seven has literally never been done before. It looks like he's going to sustain that level of play. He's averaging a near triple double in December. He's keeping the Nuggets afloat. They've got Jamal Murray out. They lost MPJ, presumably, for the entire year. AG is the second-best player now. And this is a team still fighting for a playoff spot, still fighting over 500. And people aren't – I think people aren't giving him the MVP respect that he deserves this year again. You know, I think there's really no real conversation in terms of major media of Nikola Jokic being a repeat MVP winner. And I think that that's something I kind of wanted to just just throw out there and see what you guys think about maybe potentially why he's been sort of pigeonholed behind Steph and KD, who are obviously the two big names at the top of the MVP ladder. Because um, in terms of production, I mean, I don't think you get much better than what Jokic is doing right now. And I feel like people aren't taking that level of production properly into play. So just tell me what you guys think, because. I'm I'm lost right now, honestly. You know, it's funny. We uh we had this conversation with TV about the Toronto Raptors, and we were really shocked that they weren't getting a lot of media attention. And Toronto is like a great young and up and coming team, but they we're we're not really sure what their identity is. Like, what yeah. are they? Are they a playoff team or are they a rebuilding team that's trying to make something happen in the future? but they're a great team that deserves some media attention. Nikola Jokic as a player deserves his own media outlet. Like he is, he's maybe one of the most talented players that I've seen in the league in the past 10 years. And with everything that he's been able to do, he's expanded his game so much that at times I've actually thought he's one of the most unstoppable players, players in the league. If you think about it, I mean, there's a there's a short list of players that are unstoppable. Nikola Jokic has to be in that list because it does not seem like anybody is stopping this guy. 21, what's he averaging? 21, 14, and 7? What, is that what you said? 26. 26. Yeah. Even yeah, better yeah, in yeah. points per game. And he's expanded his game to mid-range shooting, three-point shooting, versatility. Why is he not getting attention? Too. Def- defensive versatility, offensive versatility, defensive versatility. He's gotten better in a lot of categories, and it's scary how quickly he got better. And not a lot of people are talking about it. That's insane. Actually, this, yeah, part of the other reason why I came up with this particular storyline is because today is sort of a national holiday for the Nuggets. So for people who are unaware, in 2016, to start off the year, the Nuggets were playing terrible. They had both Nurkic and Jokic. They were trying to run the dual center lineup. It wasn't working. They went with Nurkic. Still wasn't working. And then on December 15th, 2016, 
the Nuggets put Jokic into the starting lineup for the first time, and he hasn't been out of the starting lineup since. Bro. And that was the game where they saw and realized that this was the guy that they'd have to lean on moving forward. And that was his second year in the league. And it's been five years since then, and he has not stopped at all. He got better than his MVP year. Like, really, like, imagine all of the players and look at their careers and all the MVP winners. Look at their season after their first MVP award. Did they get better? Are they marginal, uh, like, actually becoming the best player in the league right now? Like, PER-wise, he's at 34 and a half. That's three points higher than the all-time single-season PER. What are we doing? So right, what are we what are you, we doing? You should say what is mainstream media doing? What what is mainstream media doing? Like here's how I'll pose it because here's my thing. Because I have to I have to admit that when I so I recently had like released like my first quarter ballots for like each of the, the main awards. I had Yoke's third. And the reason why is I mean, from a mainstream media aspect, you have to kind of factor in the way. MVP actually works as an award, which yeah. storyline does factor in, unfortunately. The tricky part about that, though, that makes your topic so interesting is the fact that you can argue that the top three guys all are in disadvantageous situations. So, therefore, the the, the playing field is, le- is relatively leveled, right? Steph Curry doesn't have Klay Thompson. Name the second best player on his team. You'd probably say that it's Draymond defensively, but jo- Jordan Poole offensively. Name the depth chart after that. You get a regular NBA, like like a, a casual. Once we get past the first two or three, it's gonna get very sketchy after that, right? So then there's that. You look with look at KD, and I've been thinking about this for a while. If you look at the Brooklyn Nets right now, they literally look like a carbon copy of like the 2013 OKC Thunder. Kevin Durant, all-star point guard. Solid dude off the bench that gives great offensive production. Everybody else plays defense. Right? Which doesn't necessarily work in today's NBA for the most part because having multiple ball handlers on the floor, having versatility across the court is like the name of the game nowadays. But that's the squad he's playing with. He's playing with a squad where he he's his usage is significant this year. It seems like they're relying on him more than I've seen in a while in terms of KD having to be aggressive on the offensive end. He's playing on both sides of the floor, which is one of the, the main things that stood out about him as of the last year or two, too. And then you get the Nikola Jokic, and most of his team is injured. Like, I mean, and we're talking about, like, legitimate dudes, you know what I mean, in terms of Jamal Murray being out. Mm-hmm. Um, MPJ was a disappointment before going down with the back surgery. Um, and him going down kind of only further, I think, elevates Nikola Jokic in the discussion. I think at the end of the, the day, Steph Curry has the return of the Warriors plus the three point, you know, the three point uh record being broken and them being a legitimate team when most slept on them. And you have KD, who most people thought he low-key could have been MVP last year. And after the way the Bucs series thought, pretty much penciled him in as the number one candidate through the entire offseason. And he's riding that wave off of dropping, like, what, 51 the other day? You know what I mean? So I don't disagree with either one of you guys in terms of Nikola Jokic needing some more static. I think the fact that he's not even discussed very much 
within the top five. You kind of only that's get just the top criminal. two guys. That's yeah, I agree. I think that's yeah. the part that might be even more jacked up is I don't think it's that the mainstream media doesn't view him as a top five MVP candidate. I just feel like the buck usually stops with KD at two or Steph at two, depending on, you know, what what kind of flavor you're looking for. But I think, I mean, it's it's tricky. The league is, the, the league, this is the most parody-filled season we've had in Lord knows how sure. long. And I think that that alone has confused a lot of people into how they perceive any of these awards because everybody is playing at a lot different of a level than what we have been accustomed to over the last couple of seasons. So then at what point does like story, like I, I, I get how the MVP like award works and how it's been. I don't like it. Agreed. I think you, you really got to look at the on off numbers, look at the sheer production of the player and you know, all that stuff. But um, at what point does like, narrative outweigh just like next level production like it literally it's gotten to the point where he's having arguably the greatest season of all time like it's gotten to that level now go ahead right so, so let me let me no let me say one thing before you continue because narrative i think he has it he has a narrative he he jamal murray his his second option is out for the foreseeable future. His third best option, Michael Porter Jr., is out for the foreseeable future. Who else is assisting Jokic in scoring right now? I mean, you could argue it's Will Barton. He's been having a great season so far. But who else is helping him out? That's his narrative right there. That's that's how he wins the MVP this year. Yeah. Big minutes from Bones Highland as a rookie for a playoff team. That, that, oh, my that God. Is, that, I mean, that is that Ryan, you got a you got a pretty solid point there. You know what I mean? Like I said, I feel like the playing field is pretty even. And then even but like in terms of their personnel, but I think the point you're making is that personnel counts into all of their narratives and Jokic included. So the same way we've kind of elevated Curry for playing with his cast of characters or Durant being like solo dolo almost offensively next to James Harden. And then you have Nikola Jokic where you ask where his help is. When Will Barton is your second best player, most people will project this team to be much lower. But if you put his statistical output, talking about Jokic, um, next to this group, and they're winning games, and they're legitimately atop the West, or you know at least in the the, the top running for the West. Yeah, I mean, like I said, you got. I mean, you guys have you have you guys have great points, and I think you know. Rashad, that's something that needs to be tabled. Is the is is Jokic potentially having the greatest season of all time? Like that might be its own thing no, that might like have to actually legitimately though. be tabled. That's the that's crazy to even know. So I mean, MVP is going to be a rough one this year in terms of where the race comes down. I think most improved player is going to be rough, and I even think rookie of the year is going to be tough just because Evan Mobley's been good, but Scotty's been good, and the two top picks haven't really bursted onto the scene like Cade's been solid but not like number one drafting number one pick in the draft great yet so I, I think this might be a really crazy year for awards overall so, but but MVP man yeah it, it, I think people are just gonna be drawing straws when they get to the table like I, I legitimately yeah. think they're gonna be having a tough time like I think it's gotten to the point where it needs to be a three-person race like we need to look at all three Steph, Katie, and Jokic in the same light, and that's just not happening right now. Like I'm told, like 
I am totally fine with Katie and Steph being at the top of the, the MVP ladder because they deserve it, right? They have been, aside from the narratives, they have been absolutely hooping this year. And they've been helping their teams get to the number one seed in their conferences, respectively. But then Jokic is doing something that we've never seen before, right. ever, on so many different levels. And it's just like, you're looking at an all-time season from an individual. Like, Russ got rewarded for his all-time season when he got all those triple-doubles. His team wasn't great. He didn't lead them anywhere. They weren't top of the conference. But he got it there because of the narrative of his accomplishments helped him. I think the narrative of Jokic's accomplishments are being taken in a lesser light because, you know, he hasn't, like, won a ring because of his narratives. He hasn't been the one seed because of his narratives. He hasn't broken. Last year, some, some, some people might feel that the reason why he got the MVP last year was because he was the only one with a narrative remaining. You know, a lot of people felt like Jokic was like a yeah. fluke MVP last year because the questions of, who was he running up against when you talk about games played and things like that? And a lot of the players like LeBron and Joel Embiid, who are on his tail for most of the season, but missed a lot of games. So I oh, think man. he might just be getting a lot of hate out of the fact that people felt like he got his cheap one last year. And I think that's another thing worth pointing out in terms of it being unfair. It's just the idea that a lot of people dismissed him because he got his. Whether it was by hook or crook, they're like, he already got his, let's move on. It's tough. It's tough. <laughs> And that, yeah, we've, we've gotten to the point where questioning MVP awards now. Right. Like, that's really how Words. low it's that's gotten low. for some of the fan base. It's like, prestigious individual award in basketball because Nikola Jokic won it. Right. Like, there were people genuinely thinking, like, Joel Embiid, even after all the time that he missed, was still going to win MVP. And I thought that was really disrespectful to Jokic <laughs> in that moment. Man. I mean, that's I a, go on all day, honestly. That's a that great question that you posed, though. That's that's a great thought. We'll we'll kind of turn that into our question of the day for our fans. Do you believe that Nikola Jokic has the chance to repeat as the NBA as the NBA MVP this year? But before we officially close out the episode, Rashad, do you have anything to promote and any final thoughts as well? Where can we find you on social media? Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Um, I'm never ready for this section. Cause I always forget all my handles and stuff. Um, golly. My Twitter is at shod Piper underscore. Um, my Instagram, I believe is the same shod Piper underscore. Um, as far as what I'm working on, I don't really have too many personal projects. Honestly, I've kind of settled into my job and like, I'm enjoying it to a point where like, I don't, I don't really feel the need for the, the extra, outside personal projects yet so for right now all about my work if you're in the maryland area and you have fios channel 597 the shows that i edit for the most part every week are on saturdays for a college football so tune into that but otherwise honestly just enjoy basketball you know that's all i gotta say that's awesome bro well this has been another great episode of the hoop talk podcast Make sure to, when you subscribe to us on Apple, you rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you guys next episode. Peace. Deuces.